Well, awesome. Good morning. Welcome to River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are a kid who signed up for Kids Church, you are free to go and uh, have a great time with in Kids Church. Uh, also, as well, just so glad that you joined us for Easter this morning. Glad we get to celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus. And if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Glad that you join us. Just glad to have you with us as we celebrate the, the resurrection this morning. Uh, excited as well to continue our studying our way through the book of Philippians together. And as we take a look this morning at chapter 3, what we're, we're going to see how Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's not just this fact to be believed, but it's actually a, a or just a reason to have hope in the future. Uh, it is those things, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a transforming reality that we're actually meant to experience in our own lives each and every day. But before we get all the way to chapter 3, uh, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been gone, let me just briefly catch you up on our time in Philippians, and, and we'll dive into that together. So Philippians, um, as we've been talking about, it's a, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul uh, to uh, the church or to a church that he helped planted in the city of Philippi about 10 years before he wrote this letter. Um, it's a letter that's full of encouragement. It's, it's full of joy. It's full of thanksgiving because uh, the reality is that ever since Paul planted this church, since the very beginning, they've been a church that's been characterized by a love for God and a desire for others to know him, by sacrificial generosity with their finances, by faithfulness to the gospel and the word of God, and, and honestly, just a genuine gratitude for Paul and his leadership and his influence in their lives. In fact, the, the reason why he's writing this letter to them now isn't because there's some giant problem problem in the church, but because, in fact, they sent one of their leaders, they heard that he was in prison, they sent one of their leaders on a really dangerous journey to go check on him and to be able to provide any needs that he might have, because they just honestly cared about him, they wanted to take care of him. And so whenever Paul thinks about this church, uh, he's encouraged, he's full of joy and the thankfulness to God for them, and, and all the ways that God's been at work in and through them in, in the 10 years since they planted a church, but what you see is that even in the midst of all the reasons why Paul has to be thankful for what God's doing and has done in them, what you see throughout the letter is that Paul longs that they would continue to keep growing up in their faith. In their faith. He, he wants the good news of the gospel and the person, the work of Jesus to keep transforming their attitudes and their actions and their behaviors and their perspectives. He, just like you and me, he has this attitude towards them and towards himself that we haven't arrived yet. That God's still doing something in us. He's still at work in us. And so instead of just patting him on the back and saying thanks and attaboy, what we, we see Paul urges them is to keep pressing in to the often uncomfortable process of growing up spiritually, of, of growing in our faith, both as individuals and as a community, knowing that God's not actually done transforming us yet. And as we begin chapter 3 this morning, what we're going to see is that, is that one of the things that threatened their ongoing growth, one of the things that was going to get in the way of them being able to actually continue to grow up in their faith and to increasingly allow the gospel to keep impacting their lives was, was a temptation, honestly, that we all wrestle with. It's a temptation to base our standing with God on our own merits, to look at our own lives and our record of external obedience or lack thereof as a kind of resume that proves to God whether or not we're worthy to be called his own. And the problem with that is not only that God is wildly unimpressed with our self-reliant resumes, but 
But then when our confidence before God is rooted in ourselves, instead of actually empowering us to increasingly reflect the kind of unifying, humble, uh, others-focused lives Paul spent all of chapter 2 calling us to, the only thing that that kind of perspective actually does is all it produces in us is self-righteousness and pride or just shame and anxiety. So in contrast, what we're going to see Paul showing us this morning is that it's only when our confidence before God is rooted in what Jesus has done for us that we'll actually have access to the power that we need to live new resurrected lives, the new lives that he calls us to. In other words, the the only way that you actually experience the transforming power of Jesus' resurrection increasingly and, and able to live the new lives he calls us to is not only if we'll reject sin, but if we'll reject our reliance on our own merits to make us right with God. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. There's so much good stuff here. Let's pray and we'll dive in together. God, thanks so much for your word and our time together in it. We're so grateful for it. And God, we just come with thankful hearts to celebrate Easter this morning and the reminder of your resurrection from the dead and your overcoming Satan and sin and death. And so, God, as we come together this morning, God, I pray that wherever we're at, that you would be gracious to meet us in your word this morning. God, I pray that you would empower me by your spirit to teach your word, not just with what's true, but with power, not because I'm important, but because you are. And God, I pray that you might enable us wherever we are at to receive from you the truth of your word. God, allow it to shape us and correct us. God, I pray most of all this morning you would help it to be good news to us. God, we need that from you. We can't do it without you. And so we pray, God, for our good and for our joy, but ultimately for your glory as we rely on you, that you'd help us to see the goodness of a confidence that comes from you, Jesus. So we pray. Amen. Like I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 11. begins this way. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons but confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Man, there's so much good stuff in here this morning, but what you have to see is that Paul begins this chapter with a warning. Verse 2, he urges the Philippians to watch out. 
And he's warning them, and what he's warning them about isn't something new. He says, it's no trouble for me to remind you about this, to write this to you again. You see, it's something that he had talked with them about probably a bunch of times. And so what, what is it that he's warning them about? What does he want them to be on guard against? Well, in short, what he wants them to watch out for is religiosity. What he wants them to watch out for is religiosity. You see, religiosity, is, in whatever form it takes, whatever outward religion it takes, is always fundamentally about basing our standing with God on our own merits, believing that by our actions, by our performance, that we can justify ourselves before God. And in Philippi and in a bunch of the early churches, that, that kind of religiosity, it took the form of, it was epitomized by a group of people that were known as the Judaizers. And what they taught is that in order to be a Christian, in order to be made right with God, that you had to believe in Jesus plus, you also needed to obey all of the Old Testament laws. And, and that, that spiritual growth and maturity was ultimately measured by how well you adhered to all those rules and regulations. And, and Paul doesn't mince words when he describes what he thinks about this group of people and, and, what, and what they teach, their religious mindset. He refers to them in verse 2 as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. You don't need to have a lot of context to know that that is bad, right? But this was a scathing rebuke. You see, in the ancient world, dogs weren't uh, lovable family pets, right? Like, I have a dog, I love him, he's great, right? Uh, in the ancient world, dogs were viewed as disgusting animals. They were just disease-carrying scavengers. And, in the, and it was a term that Jews would often use to describe Gentiles or people who weren't Jews, to, who they viewed as spiritually unclean. But with this kind of biting irony, Paul says, uh, that's a term that, that actually uh, is, should be applied rightly to these Judaizers, not to, not to Gentiles. And see, they think they're very holy and very spiritual and that God is very pleased with them. But what Paul says is that they're not holy, spiritual, pleasing people to God. They're evildoers. They're leading people away from God and the truth of the gospel. And he says that their insistence on the practice of circumcision, which was this, the external sign in the Old Testament of, of being set apart as the people of God, that that didn't have any spiritual value because of Jesus. Instead, all they were doing was just self-mutilation. When you're thinking at the end of that, you're like, wow, well, Paul, why don't you just tell us what you really think, right? And so the question that you got to ask when you see such a strong statement like that is, is why? Why is Paul so forcefully pushing back against the religiosity of these Judaizers? And why is Paul warning the Philippians about them again and again and again? Why is it so important? Well, one, the obvious thing is that it doesn't work, right? Like, on our best day, our best performance, the absolute day we nail it in every way spiritually, what Isaiah says is that that looks like filthy, dirty, nasty rags to God. He is wildly unimpressed. His standard is perfection. None of us are getting close to that, even on our best days. But it's not just that it doesn't work is the reason why Paul's trying to remind them about this over and over the reality is that even though it doesn't work, we all tend towards this way of thinking. We all tend towards it. We drift towards it. You see, religiosity is the default mode of the human heart. Not just for the Judaizers, for all of us. And the reason is because it makes sense to us. You see, in almost every area of our lives, we're used to making resumes lists of our accomplishments and our skills and our achievements, and we use them as a kind of argument or a kind of a justification as to why we should be 
approved of or included or led into some group or some place or some relationship or a job that we're on the outside of. We make resumes to get into college or to get a job. We list our accomplishments and our skills and all the things that we have done well that would be a benefit to a company or, or to a college. And while they're not formal documents, we make resumes as well to get into relationships. Uh, just look at it, any dating website, right? I'm, I'm not trying to disparage dating websites, but I'm just saying, like, it's just a digital version of what we all do in real life, right? We present a version of ourselves. And we list all the things that are important to us or that we think matter or that make us worthy of being accepted by someone. And we do that with our friendships and our social groups. We try to wear the right clothes or care about the right things or have the right opinions so that people will let us in. And so it's only natural that we try to relate to God like that, isn't it? that we would try to build up a resume before God to say, God, here's all the reasons. Here's all the reasons why you should approve of me, why you should let me in, why, why you should call me your own. But what Paul says is that that's not how people who are truly God's own people, that's not how people who are God's, that's not how they think about, that's not how they relate to him. Verse 3, he he contrasts the self-reliance of the Judaizers that characterizes them with this reliance on God and his power that characterizes those that really truly know God and have been made right with him. He says it's for we who are the circumcision. He says it's, it's we who are the real people of God, the true people of God who really know him and are right with him. He says we're the ones who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. See, the reality is that Paul had every possible reason to embrace the religious mindset of the Judaizers. He had every reason to embrace it, to boast in himself and to root his confidence in his standing before God on his own merits. His spiritual resume was incredible. Verse 5, it says he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I wasn't a convert to Judaism. I'm, I'm part of the people of God from the very beginning. I was born into this. And I'm not, one of, I'm not into one of those lesser, insignificant tribes. I was born into the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel's very first king, the one that remained faithful to him, even when everyone else walked away. He says, and I'm not a Hebrew on the surface who's really just some kind of Hellenist Greco-Roman person who can't even speak the language of the Bible anymore. He says, I am the real deal. I am legit. I'm from the beginning. It's like putting on your college application. My family started this school. My dad is the president. I've been walking these halls since I was a toddler. See, Paul's pedigree was impeccable. But so was his performance. He goes on in verse 6 to say, In regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He says, I was a part of the most rigorous, strictest sect of Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. I followed every rule and every regulation. I crossed every T. I dotted every I. I was so zealous for God that I persecuted people that I thought were opposed to him. And I hunted people down and arrested and tried to murder those who to follow Jesus. I thought they were leading people away from God. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He says, if anybody had a reason to rely on their own power to obey God, it was me. 
If anybody had a reason to boast in themselves and their pedigree and their performance, it was me, he says. If anyone had a reason to rely on their own merits, it was me. But, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's he's using financial accounting language. He says, whatever things I put on my resume that I thought were pluses, that I thought were impressive, they were actually negatives. They weren't impressive at all. He says, everything he thought was valuable and impressive and praiseworthy, everything he looked to for his identity and security, everything he used to justify himself before God, it was worthless garbage. God was not impressed His self-reliant spiritual resume was not going to grant him right standing with God, the, the righteousness that he could get from his pedigree and his performance. It was not enough. One commentator puts it this way, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. He was not, it was not the bad things that kept Paul from God. It was the good things. He had to lose his religion in order to find salvation. You see, what Paul came to understand is that religiosity is not the answer. It's not the way in with God. And so you got to ask, what is? Well, he goes on in verses 8 and 9 to to say that the thing that's the way in with God is relationship with Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, it's for his sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Literally, that word that's translated there is excrement, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a a righteousness, not having a right standing with God that comes from obedience to the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, religiosity is all about the things that we try to do to get to God, to justify ourselves before him, to gain his approval. And religiosity, what it does is it leads us to try to present resumes to God that are full of listing things like our pedigree and our performance, that we're from a good family, we do good things, we go to church, we give, we try to be good people, but the gospel is altogether different, Paul says. See, it's all about what God has done to get to you. And when he says, when you relate to God through the person and the work of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel, what it leads you to do is to present a resume before God that is based entirely on a single reference. There's no list of accomplishments. There's no family backgrounds. There's no pedigree. There's one reference on the page. You say, I know Jesus. And he knows me. The only righteousness I have, my only grounds for right standing with you, God, is my relationship with you. I have put my faith in his work on my behalf. He lived the life I could not live. He, did the, he died the death my sin deserved. All I have is him. You see, a Christian is somebody who recognizes that the only way 
to present a resume before God that gets you in with him is if Jesus is the name on the resume. That's the only way in. Jesus plus nothing is everything. See, some of you are here this morning and the resume you are trying to present before God is full of your accomplishments and it's full of your behavior. I go to church, I do good things, I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, the list goes on. It's full of references to what other people or institutions think of you. My family are Christians, other people think I'm a good person and I just need you to hear this morning, I say this to you in love. Your resume sucks. It's not enough. God is not impressed with it. His standard of being is impressed is the perfection of Jesus, and you don't compare. And you're not getting in with that kind of a resume. And I think deep down the reality is that you know that. You know that. That's why you're always trying to add things to the list because you feel like you're not sure if you've added enough. That's why you're always trying to compare yourselves to others. That's the reason why when you do and you find someone who you think has a less impressive spiritual resume than you, it makes you feel good about yourself. Or when you look at people of a more impressive resume than you, a spiritual resume, that's why you're full of anxiety and doubt about your standing with God. You see, but here is the good news. Even though your resume is altogether unimpressive, God still loves you. And in the midst of your unimpressive self-reliance, he sent his son to die on your behalf, to live the life that you should have lived, to die the death your sin deserved. And it's his resume is perfect. And he says, put me down as the one thing. The thing of surpassing worth. The thing that changes everything. The thing that gets you in. Others of you are here. And you've trusted Christ to be your righteousness but what happens is in the midst of your life, what you do is say so you keep choosing to relate to God like you need to keep revamping your resume. And you've, you've listed Christ as your reference, but you feel like it's your relative obedience or your recent lack of sinning, your consistency in your quiet times or how much you give or how well you serve that are the things that God's really looking at, the things that really change your standing with him. And what you're finding is that the life that Jesus calls you to live in response to him has become this kind of crushing burden for you because you're trying to live it in order to get something from God or you're, because you're worried about losing something in order instead of actually instead of actually living it as a response to all that he has done for you you're still relying on yourself the reality is is that when our confidence before god is placed in our performance even if on a head level you know that it's just Jesus that makes you right with God. But when you live in, as though you're the one that everything hinges on, what happens is that it actually robs you of the power you need to live the life God calls you to. 
You see, religiosity, it just produces self-righteousness and pride or shame and anxiety because we proudly think we've earned our way in or we worry and despair because we don't think we have or we just don't know. But faith in the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus is altogether different because, because our right standing with God comes from reliance on him and not ourselves. What happens is it leads you to a life of humility and joy, one that is full of confidence, not in yourself, Ephesians 6 talks about how Christians, we should arm ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness, with a right standing before God that comes by faith. It's like a bulletproof vest. When your righteousness depends on your obedience, you have no defense. But when your righteousness hinges on Jesus' obedience on your behalf, nothing gets through that. You see, and it's not just that you have confidence. It's that, it's that you have actually access to the kind of power you need to live a new life. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 11, right? He says, not that he wants to only to know Christ, but to know the power of his resurrection. You see, Jesus didn't die the death that your sin deserved. He didn't just do that. He rose from the grave. And he conquered Satan and sin and death, not only so that you and I could have a, a hope that one day, that our tombs will one day be empty as well, but so that each and every day we might have the confidence to know that the same power that lived in Jesus, that empowered him to live the life of obedience unto God that he did, that that same power that raised him from the dead, that that same power is available to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says it this way, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. One pastor put it this way, he says, The gospel doesn't just bring about forgiveness of sins and save us from hell. The gospel of Jesus empowers us to live a whole new life today by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. You and I, we have access to the very presence and power that spoke the world into existence, that flooded the earth and parted the Red Sea and empowered Jesus to preach and heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons. We have the power that overcomes Satan and sin and death. Church, that's why Easter is good news. It's not just that there is a hope for the future. There is. That's absolutely part of it. But it's that you don't have to wait until that day to experience the resurrected life that Jesus died so that you might have. You have access to it now, not just in the future. The empty tomb is not just a promise that one day by faith in Christ, our tombs will be empty. It's a proclamation that in this life we have access to the renewing power of God's spirit today. That's the thing that enables you to live a life of glad obedience unto God. I need you to hear this. Religiosity can never do that. Can never do that. Because religiosity, it depends on you. It depends on your power and your strength and, and your ability. But the gospel, it depends on Jesus. 
on his resume, his credentials given to you to secure your right standing with God and his power living in you to give you the strength that you need to live a life that glorifies him both now and forever. You cannot get that power on your own. It only comes from him. And the good news of the gospel is an invitation that we might rest See, and that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves about the good news of the gospel, about Jesus' body and blood that were broken and shed for us, given so that you and I might not only be saved, but might be given the power we need to live new lives of worship unto him. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you. Paul says, the only thing that does that is faith in Jesus a righteousness that comes by faith. That's it. But if you're, so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, if you find that you're still relying on a religious mindset or that you don't think you need him at all, then I just want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart like the old hymn, The Rock of Ages says, that comes to him that's saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, naked. I come to thee for dress, helpless looked to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Church, that's the way in. It's the only. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and we are, and this community is. And so I want you to know, wherever you are at this morning, in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your process, wherever you are, I want you to know you are welcome here. You're welcome in this community. And we'd love to help you get to know Jesus, a thing of surpassing worth. So if you've trusted him and believed the gospel or you do that for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back, one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice and take communion that way. And as you do, as we sing and as we worship God, as we remember his resurrection and his power given to us to live new resurrected lives, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Like I said, some of you are here this morning and for your whole life you have been living under the exhausting weight of trying to earn God's approval. And this morning I just want to invite you to rest. To rest in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. He died the death that your sin deserved and he rose from death so that you could live a life victorious over sin and Satan and death. And you might, and in order to have access to him and to his power, you need to repent not of some rebellious kind of life, but you need to repent of relying on your own resume to make you right with him. Some of you are here And you grew up under the weight of that kind of religiosity. And so when you got out on your own, you just chucked your faith altogether, right? And a friend or a family member invited you to church this morning. And because you're a Midwesterner, you're too nice to say no. 
right? And so you got dragged here in some way, shape, or form. But the reality is, is that I need you to know this, that God is actually pursuing you. And he's calling you to find rest in him because the reality that you have found is that you traded the weight of religiosity for the weight of being your own God. And what you find is that it's not actually working either for you. And so no, religion doesn't work. But the gospel does. And I want to invite you this morning to reconsider the person and the work of Jesus. Lastly, like I said, some of you are here And Jesus is the reference on your resume. You know that faith in him is the thing that saves you, but you keep drifting back into the mindset of religiosity. And I want to encourage you this morning. You don't need to revamp your resume with God. You have the thing on it already, the one reference you need. You don't need to revamp it anymore. You can't improve it. You're not making it better. Instead, what I want to encourage you is to press into knowing the one who lets you in. Press into knowing him and asking him to empower you with the resurrection power you need to live a life of worship unto him. One that's full of joy and confidence and hope each and every day. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to get to come and worship you this morning. And we are so thankful, Jesus. We are so grateful that that there is no resume we could put together that would impress you, but that the one thing we need is a reference to your son, Jesus. To be found in him. God, we could never earn a right standing with you but you give it to us freely by faith in Jesus. Would you help us, Jesus, to lay down our religiosity, to see it for the worthless garbage that it really is, and to instead be motivated out of a love for you and a gratitude for you that leads us to live lives that relentlessly give ourselves back to you, not relying on our own power to do it, but resting in the same power that raised you from the dead. We need you for all of it, Jesus. Would you empower us to be your people and to live for you, we pray.